Welcome to Glossonomia. Conversations about the sounds of speech. Hey. How you doing? Uh, good. This is Eric Armstrong, and I'm with... Phil Thompson. Yes, and we're going to talk about two lexical sets this week, which is sometimes a bit of a change, right? We've normally kept it to one, and this yes. week we're going to zoom in on the square and the start lexical set. Um, and so these are lexical sets that include... Uh, erotic quality are yeah. coloring and um, th- these two in particular I don't think necessarily go together if we look at the the various uh, rhotic uh, lexical sets they don't necessarily go together no I think that they that we may have uh, run into them uh, in our list because they are in the order that J.C. Wells puts them in his book uh, so he has start right after square. But I think that's not meant to indicate any sort of inherent similarity between them. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, if we were to follow good old J.C., uh, near would be before square and start. And we haven't done near yet. Uh, we're out of sequence. I'm looking at our list, and actually near near isn't on our list of our, our things we're planning to do. So we may have to tack it on. Uh, I'm just going to make a note to myself for the future to do that. So I I will say this term, uh, rhotic diphthongs or R-coloring diphthongs, there's another way of describing them, which is centering diphthongs. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember if that's Gimson or some early English phonetician described them as centering diphthongs. And I think that that's interesting. I think that's right. It seems to be a little bit of an easier fit with non-rhotic that read RP accents, Sure. to think of them starting at the periphery of the vowel chart, the periphery of the vowel space, and then relaxing in towards the middle. I, I think in some ways it's more consistent with rhotic ones in that so many non-rhotic ones aren't centering these anymore. That's true. That's true. And, and that could be the distinction between our two words, uh, two categories this week, if we say them in a non-rhotic accent, then uh, square and start, I'll, I'll do them non-rhotic, square, start, start is not going to centralize. I think there are old, old, old Victorian ones, and maybe before, that had start, that had yeah. a uh, sort of a rhotic element. It was non-rhotic in, in it, that it didn't have our coloring, but it had that centering quality. It's um, certainly possible to do. And, uh, it, and older speech, um, you know, uh, linguistic texts certainly always mention the possibility of centering on start. Well, so. as a matter of fact, Edith Skinner, uh, in trying to provide this sort of minimal R coloring, advises, I think, on all of these centering diphthongs that we come to a relaxed neutral central place without adding roticity so that start, start is apparently rhotic even though it's not really adding that little rhotic bunch to it. Uh, so uh, all of hers, although they're written as w- without any roticity mark, I think they have a little shadow of centralization that lets you hear an R. Mm. 
And, and when I hear start, I do hear an R, and I think a lot of my students share that. Yes. Yeah, that centering stands for roticity, even yeah. though the action of the articulators doesn't match either the bunching or curling action mm -hmm. that we expect when we think of a rhotic R-colored accent. Let me see if I can go back and, and take a more basic introduction, just in case anybody is itching to get to these sounds and jumped ahead to this episode. Our notion of diphthongs is that they are sounds made out of two parts. I really, really like, and I've been using now the way you described it when we first started doing this, which is that a diphthong is a vector, that there's a starting place and an ending place, and there's some sort of arc of movement between those two spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's variability on how what path we travel from the first sound, which we could call the nucleus, to the last sound, which we could call the coda. And that's true of all diphthongs. So in, in square, let's start there, the starting point is dress, yes? Yes. And there are variations in pronunciation of dress, and there are variations in the pronunciation of the first element of square. Let's just say that it's eh as a phoneme, uh, that it is something like an epsilon. And then the second part of it, that's the thing we were just discussing, whether it's a rhotic schwa, let's say, or some other central vowel. It's also true that one might describe this, um, one might write it phonemically with an R symbol, so that mm -hmm. this is the way J.C. Wells goes about it. He gives an epsilon followed by an R symbol, which is meant to be read phonemically. Right, and he marks that in his text by putting it between uh, yeah. back slashes, front slashes. I never know what you kind of slashes those are. Uh, front slashes, I think. Uh, slashes. They go from low to high, from yes. left to right. I think the other name for those is virgule, but I, I have to look that up. Hmm. Did not know that. So, so yes, uh, let's come back to that notion of why we would use uh, phonemic representation. We'll leave that aside. I want to just cover start for a moment. Sure. The starting element in a phonemic representation of the start diphthong is a, ah, which is a script a. And the second element is perhaps a schwa, perhaps a schwa with roticity, or if we're being very phonemic, uh, an R symbol. So we could see these as dress plus R or palm plus R, let's say. That's right, yeah. How so are they different from dress plus R or palm plus R? Well, I think it comes down to how we conceptualize them. Uh, that is to say, they're diphthongs, so they're in the same syllable. So, Right, so it's not like taking a word, uh, if we compare the word spar the, yeah. to the word spa and putting an R on the end of it, uh, there's something about the nature of R, uh, there's not a syllabic er that we're going, we're not going spa er. Yeah. Uh, if you could say somebody who runs a spa is a spa runner, yes. that's different than a spar runner. Yes, so there's something about that syllable break that the R quality is still part of that first syllable. 
And this is really very evident for us as Rhodic speakers. Uh, and it's an interesting distinction uh, how the difference in phoneme between start and palm plus R behaves in different accents based on their roticity. Yeah. So uh, I'd, I'd like to just see if we can stick with square and talk about how those many variables play out. Mm-hmm. So we could start with the nucleus, and we could say that nucleus might be quite high, square. And there's a point where square and near might overlap. In some context, you might say uh, that's a square shape. And even though it's well into the territory of near, we, we might hear it as belonging to square. I don't know if I made that very clear. Or that you might hear a square word sounding like it's a near word. So, for instance, yes. a Bajan accent might pronounce a word like chair in such a way that it sounds like you're saying cheer. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think there's some variability in the west coast of Ireland. So that beer, is it? near going to square I can't recall now but you can see that those two are they're, they have high starting places and they move to the center so they, their vowel clouds might overlap in terms of where the nucleus is and I, I also think even for people who have quite open dress sounds um, you know coming from Canada where we have this dress raising thing we go raise, raise our dresses all over the place <laughs> Uh, actually, dress lowering. I'm sorry, I, I, I yes. mixed it up. That we're lowering our dresses, so we said a rad dress. Uh, yes. That's uh, many uh, young people in southern Ontario are saying more and more open uh, dress lexical set. Air, um, the sort of dictionary form that people have in their mind when they exaggerate their pronunciation, and sometimes we get this that uh, you know someone's trying to figure out well what is it that I say. They start to exaggerate what they say, and they start to take square into that element of sort of a the the, the mm-hmm. what I would expect a face um, sound to sit in. So they're going square, square uh, as opposed to square. So they're breaking the diphthong into two syllables mm-hmm. and give, giving it a kind of a twang to it. So sometimes that happens that people in their their kind of dictionary form or their exaggerated form that they have in their their mind's ear, if you will, um, is raising that up to to differentiate it, perhaps. That reminds me of a couple of things. One is the historical square, which I think might have been A plus R. I'm not quite sure about that. So essentially we have a triphthong there. Uh, Let's leave that aside for a moment and say that the distinction between dress and square is somewhat confused if you come from a Skinner background. Uh, We've talked about this before, surely when we talked about dress, Mm -hmm. that the symbol used by Skinner for dress is the lowercase e. And that came because Tilly, trying to teach uh, an RP accent, Mm -hmm. uh, used that symbol correctly, phonetically, with a lowering symbol to say bed and dress was lowered form of a 
So for Skinner teachers, though, they still kept the epsilon in the square diphthong. Right. And that wasn't meant to necessarily distinguish between the way people, especially American speakers, differentiate between those two. It's possible to not differentiate at all. It's not that every time we say square, we're necessarily lowering it. Uh, it would be entirely possible to say bad square uh, to lower your dress and to raise your square, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right that there is a little bit of differentiating. If I think about the word mayor, which is two syllables, may, face, er, uh, that's often said as mare. Right. Similar and, to a homophone for the lady horse. Exactly. And so I, I certainly in Iowa when I was growing up, those two words were homophones, really. Uh, the mayor of Horsetown. Uh, so we could have a high starting place or a low starting place. I guess we could have a more centralized starting place for a square. Square. I'm lowering that too, I think. Mm-hmm. Don't be such a square. Square. So there's a pretty big cloud around that central, uh, around that uh, nucleus. And and yet we're phonemically conceptualizing it as epsilon, as dress. The other question is how long we spend on the nucleus before we get to the coda. So... If I go almost immediately to the coda, square, square, I could linger over that square. And in that sense, I'm making the the coda, the second part of the diphthong, longer than the first part. Yes. And, and this goes back to the question of how we notate uh, diphthongs. The common practice is to put a breath symbol over the second element, because it's almost always shorter. Right. Or the non-syllabic mark, and right? And that's what I've started doing so that I can make this distinction. So it's mm-hmm. possible to say that the, the coda is longer than the nucleus. Right. So how long we spend in the two places? Next is what the vowel quality of that second spot is. Yes. And I, I would say that the... Even if we take roticity out of it, square, square, you could have it higher or lower, but it's mostly going to be on that central axis. axis. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and to what degree um, that, how, you know, the verticality, how open or close that uh, centering element the um, the coda is um, can can have a fairly strong impact on the overall feel of an accent, yeah. um, but uh, often I think people starting out have a hard time differentiating um, those subtle differences. Uh, as it gets more close, I think people sometimes have a harder time with that. Especially with the coda, because we're conceptualizing the whole thing as one phonemic unit, so it's kind of hard to pull it apart. Mm-hmm. To, to capture what you're really doing with that second element. 
And in flowing speech, often they're very brief, Absolutely. and so that can be challenging as well. Uh, there, there's also the question of of roticity, and we've left that out for now. Uh, I want to just briefly touch on smoothing and breaking, which again we've talked about before. A smooth diphthong is moving towards the condition of not having a second element. It may not be fully gone, but so it might be only partially smoothed. And breaking is taking what is a diphthong and separating them. So in a non-rhotic accent, you could get square and basically not do the second element, square. Or you could break it, square, and you could have a clear separation of those two syllables. Yes, so we might have that in a, a Cockney accent, square. Exactly. Breaking it in an emphatic articulation. Or someone like Hermione in Harry Potter saying, he's not there, Harry, he's not there. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that, that very, very open, ah, sound. Absolutely, so square opening, square lowering, is a process going on in, in London, in England now. I recall hearing somebody on the news talking about health care. And I thought, my goodness, we're ending with a trap with an ah. So smoothing or breaking, the starting or ending points, and then the final element that we could vary is roticity. Mm-hmm. So as I said before, just the central vowel can appear like roticity, square, square. And... Or I could put in the R. Now, this is the point I thought it might be useful to talk about what that phoneme R is. We mentioned before that some people just write the right side up R. J.C. Wells does this. And by doing that, they're saying there's an R here. There's a, a phonemic concept of an R. However you come to it. Exactly. Right? That it's open and it's not prescriptive. Sometimes see, people see that and they're like, what? They're suggesting a trill? Yeah. No, of course not. Not a trill. Just an R of the quality that you happen to make. Exactly. And there are several ways at roticity. And it's sort of an acoustic resonant effect. It's a, a tuning of the vocal tract to produce, now I've already forgotten it, even though you and I just chatted about it, lowering of the, the third, third format. format. It's easy to remember because third uh, has our coloring Very in. good. So, so yes, this is one way of, this is the way the acoustic phonetician might want to talk about roticity. You can see on a spectrogram that the third formant, and that's the third up from the bottom, how it dips down when roticity starts. But obviously, what's on the spectrogram is what we're hearing and we're interpreting. So anything that produces that resonant effect, we're hearing as R. Mm -hmm. So the three things that jump to my mind of that produce R-ishness are raising of the midline of the dorsum of the tongue, that might be together with molar bracing, bracing the sides of the tongue against the molars. So that's a, a kind of a velarization. Yeah, I think so. Although... Perhaps in some strong accents, even into the realm of pharyngealization. Well, that brings in what I think would be the second element, which would be tongue root retraction. 
Mm-hmm. So let me see if I can distinguish the the two. I'm going to do start with midline racing. Start now with tongue root retraction. Start ah. Now it could be a mix of the two of them. Yes, but th- those are the kinds of R's that we encounter now. It's also true that retroflexion produces a similar quality. Start. But I think that what's producing the roticity is the effect of tongue tip curling on the back of the tongue. Because hmm. I don't know how much acoustic effect that tongue tip is really having. Some, I'm sure. And then I should also add there's a third way that you can get a sense of roticity, which is by lip corner advancement. Uh, you know... Often singers will say, I heard, and they're really using lip corners to, to make a rounded version like an O-E symbol. Uh, and often when I quiz people on those front rounded vowels, uh, if they're not really up to speed, they'll put roticity in there. They'll, they'll think yes. they're hearing an R. Right, as so many people interpret the German pronunciation of Goethe as Goethe. Exactly right. And that's really the detection of that third form of lowering and putting it into the system that you have. Yeah. So, roticity. I just want to bring up what Dudley Knight has written about the rotic zone. Essentially, what he's saying is that by raising your tongue up into this sort of palatal, velar, uvular, pharyngeal area, you can create those effects. And this is one reason why, as we talked about in nurse, nurse sometimes shifts over into er, that the, hmm. the roticity has shifted slightly so that it's become a high central e vowel. All right, that I think I've gone too far down that direction. <laughs> uh, we've so, yeah, we've got we've a range of possibilities way. on square. Uh, why don't I call them out to you and you demonstrate them? Okay. So let's do a completely smoothed, non-rhotic square. Square. Terrific. Now let's add roticity onto it. Square. Oh, that's great. So the roticity is starting immediately on that e, eh, and we'd have to put a little. Uh, roticity symbol on the epsilon symbol itself. Mm-hmm. So those are both monophthongs uh, of varying length, one with roticity, one without. Uh, let's now do a non-rhotic diphthong with a central vowel in the second part. Square. Terrific. If we break that, what do we get? Square. <laughs> and did you hear that you actually did face in there? Yes. Uh, which, yeah. Square. That's what Square. makes me think that historically Square. that's the development of it. I, I must have read that Perhaps, somewhere. Yes. Yeah. So, Square. let's try changing the height of the initial element of square, but keeping it non rhotic. Uh, so, I'm a non rhotic, but more close? Yes. Uh, square. <laughs> that's odd. Uh, now make it more open than epsilon. Square. That sounds familiar. That's terrific. Now we can change the roticity in the second element. And by doing that, we're going to change the height 
and we're, we're going to change that second element so much that we're going to have some influence on the height of it as well. Sure. Square. Beautiful. Square. Square. So there, just so everyone's clear, you're changing the the nucleus starting place. Yes. So you want me to keep the nucleus the same and change the height of the uh, coda? Yes. You make an excellent toy, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so starting in the middle, um, trying to stay in the middle, square, then a little bit more close, square, and then a little bit more open, square. Awesome. And pretty much the same amount of roticity. It just occurred to me that another way that roticity varies is how long that that roticized element is. So if you did a short R and then a long R, can you make that distinction? Uh, Square and square. And I really think that, you know, when you get that real pirate R, what's happening is that you're just lingering in that bunched place. Right. Yeah, so we did... R, 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 R. Hard to get off that R well, when it's that. And that's why I think even speech teachers in rhotic accents do encourage a lightening of roticity simply because the, the residual tension, the sort of abiding posture of R can sometimes affect intelligibility. Because right. everything, everything is... Pulled back and down. Yeah, well, especially with tongue root retraction, I would say. But there are sure accents where your tongue's kind of pulled back and you've got an R going on all the time. Yeah. So p- part of it is how agilely you can enter into roticity and leave roticity. Wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, I think that is a great uh, setup for discussing uh, square or start going into uh, another syllable yeah. so that... Um, you know, when we have something like fairer, um, that, that next syllable, uh, in certain accents, of course, the roticity isn't on the first half, so we get fairer, um, but uh, fair, fairer, consonant R put on the second syllable, but still a, a coda to the diphthong, fairer. Or if I put a bunch of roticity on the first diphthong, fairer. <laughs> and at that point, right. I'm reiterating the same articulation. I mean, it's worth... With a little pulse of energy, perhaps. Exactly. Fairer. And but that's certainly the way I grew up saying it. It's interesting to... or I think it's important to note here that we're doing something conventional in the way we usually represent this that a schwa with roticity, you could argue, is identical to the kind of approximant R that most Americans use in initial positions. Right. So, right, far. Though I'm doing pretty much the same action with no tongue tip retroflexion. But when we have these linking R situations, or Sandy or liaison, what can happen is that you kind of get stuck. And the, the joke uh, on 30 Rock was rural juror was rural juror. That the, it becomes a sort of a, a black hole 
of roticity that you can't make much distinction between sounds and syllables because the action itself is so strong that you can't leave it and re-enter it easily. Right. And just to remind people that we have covered all yes. this stuff in great detail in full episodes on Vowel R, episode 31, includes centering diphthongs. And we also talked about linking R, intrusive R, triphthongs, and why the R symbol in episode 33. So uh, there's lots more of this stuff if you're enjoying this. You can go back into the back catalog and have a little dig. Excellent. So uh, one, one element that just occurred to me that can sometimes accompany uh, square less than start is nasality. Uh, I, I think that I have heard more nasality in square than in start. That if I heard somebody talking and they said square, I wouldn't expect them to also say start. Right. And I think you'd, of course, hear it more likely in something like uh, like the word nary, right? Nary yeah. uh, or mary uh, when there's a nasal consonant proceeding. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, when when we get into those more close front vowels, knee, me, nay, may, uh, na, ma, and all in that air area, it's much more likely for someone who has a nasality issue that that the the lingering nasality from nasal consonants preceding close front vowels and diphthongs, it's going to stick around. Well, and it does make sense that the oral tract is more closed. And so if the velopharyngeal port is open, then it's more likely for the sound to go out through the nose because it can't quite get out through the mouth. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little resistance, yeah. you know, in the front leads it to go at the back. So I'm trying to think if there's anything uh, that we haven't dealt with. I suppose we could just uh, deal with Mary, 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 uh, although you're right, we have dealt with those before. There is mm. some boundary confusion between trap plus R, dress plus R, and square. Yes. And if your categories are different than the target accent, it can be quite confusing mm-hmm. to say, should I say parent or parent? And so yeah, I think it has to do, first of all, it's, awfully convenient for me to merge them all together. There are no choices to be made. Uh, Mary was Mary because she got married. And I think that what we ought to do is look to the spelling to see four accents that distinguish what category they fall into. So if it's spelled with an R, or rather with an A, the chances increase that it's going to be trap plus R. Yeah especially if there are double R's uh, like Mary, Harris. Parry, Barry, Parasite. Uh, Parasite has only one R. Yes. And and parent isn't parent, although I'm sure in some accents it it switches categories. I'm sure it's in free variation for some people. It is definitely in free variation. It seems to be... In many films that I see lately, more contemporary accents, a lot of people are saying parent instead of parent. So so those are phonemic categories, and there are, as we said before, instances where the 
the roticity has abandoned the first syllable and moved into the second syllable. Uh, that, that the dress or trap are their own syllable and the roticity, the R, only begins in the second syllable. I'm trying to think of, um, it's instructive to say a similar thing about uh, start. Starry night, starry night, starry night, starry night. Those are three possibilities. Uh, and it really has to do with when the roticity starts and how long it lasts. Mm. I don't know. I think I might have exhausted really have my list of things to talk about. Well, I mean, there there is, uh, you know, there are words where um, that we have the sort of morphological alternations where you have things like compare and comparison. Mm. Um, and that in s some accents you get that comparison, you get that trap vowel, but compare you don't. Um, and so there aren't many of those. Would that be generally non-rhotic accents? I guess so. Comparison. I'm, I wouldn't say comparison, would you? No. Um, and so I, I guess that's exclusively to non-rhotic accent. Um, and the, the other thing that um, I, I often think of uh, the word dairy, the, you know, um, like uh, not the place, D-E-R-R-Y, mm -hmm. but dairy products. Um, that some people have a, dif a differentiation between dairy and dairy, um, and uh, f a fairy and fairy. And when people are trying to differentiate that sort of dress sound, that's when I think they're more likely to get more close. Mm. Um, that if there is a, a, a likelihood of a possible homophone, that when people are trying to differentiate dairy from dairy or fairy from fairy that you get this air more of a, a A-like mm -hmm. kind of setting. I don't know whether there's any proof of that, um, but it seems to me that people trying to really distinguish the difference between a dress plus R from a, a square plus R um, are going to dial up the square one. It's interesting it more close because because I don't make a distinction uh, in maintaining that distinction. You're right. We have to maintain it with something, and so I'm trying to think of a place uh, where we would hear dairy and dairy. I mean, I, it, it does seem like that is in in a non-rhotic accent. It's very clear that there's yeah. a difference. So if I was if I was going to try to differentiate a dairy, a dairy from dairy, uh, maybe I might dial up the R coloring at dairy from dairy to make the E eh of mm -hmm. dairy cleaner in a way. But I would imagine most people would just have complete homophones. Well, this is clearly something that we don't have all the data on, and it would be interesting to, to do a little bit of investigating and, and surveying uh, how people how those distinctions end up being made. Because the reason we have these categories and the reason that we have differentiation in vowels at all is in order to make words distinct. And, and the whole idea of lexical sets is about distinguishing minimal pairs, distinguishing one word from another word.
And so it might have to do with mm. the community and the, the lexicon, what words are actually in need of being distinguished. So I, I don't think I have enough information about it. Yeah. There is a little paragraph about this in, uh, in Wells, um, about the opposition of square and dress. So it gives examples of Mary and Mary and fairy and fairy and bearer and error and uh, the other, you know, Mary, 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 Harry and Harry, rarity and parity, a parent and apparent. So he does give more examples of that rather than the classic Mary, Mary, Mary. And that, that can be helpful, I think, to have, to have another arrow <laughs> in your arrow in your quiver uh, when discussing these things because my tendency is to just have one yes. example and it's nice to be able to say but there's all think of the difference between uh, a parent and well I think that it's it, um, to speak of this pedagogically for a moment that it's really useful for us to point out to our students that such distinguish distinctions are possible so that when they listen to an accent, they yes. can hear it and go, oh, I think I know what's going on. This is that thing. Uh, and the word that I've mm. been using to, to discuss this is uh, roticity bleed. That, that it's mm. when the roticity starts and how, how it bleeds into another syllable. I, uh, I put together some sample sentences from Shakespeare for Mary and Mary. Uh, and there's some good ones in Shakespeare. Uh, Friar Lawrence says, be merry, give consent to marry Paris. Or I suppose Paris is a possibility as well. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, tarry is a word that comes up a lot, although it's not necessary to distinguish it, distinguish it because there are no Shakespearean characters named Terry. Right. Uh, so you can say Terry Rashwanton and not confuse people about uh, what the word is. And, you know, if there was a character named Terry, I suspect most people wouldn't get that confused. Yes. Terry. Terry. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> I did make a distinction there, which might have been of length. I'm trying to, to have those words have different meaning, but within my accent. Terry, Terry. Mm. I don't know. I, I can't trust myself anymore. Uh, because I know what kind of distinctions are available to be used. I might be just using them, but they might not come naturally to me. Uh, there was one thing about start that I wanted to throw in here and sort of tick, bubbled up into my head, and that is in, in southern accents where there's a sort of ambiguity about roticity, uh, and I'm thinking of Texas as a good example, uh, mm -hmm. start start can really have lip rounding or, or it can have such a uh, darkening uh, because of the tongue root retraction I can't start my car so that it almost starts to sound like a North Force word mm -hmm. uh, there's my car is at the core and that's a distinctive feature that I think is coming from the the way the roticity is being accomplished. Yeah, it's, and that tongue root retraction is pulling it back into uh, the the area we associate with yeah. that slightly rounded or 
Um, yeah, Le uh, Wells has this little funny thing. He says the start vowel has no traditional name, although in Gen M it can be seen as an instance of, quote, short O. And that, in a way, is what you just described is the only instance I can think of. I wouldn't classify that accent you're doing as being anywhere near no. Gen Am. Um, and so that, I'm, I'm I, not sure how start could be considered in he Gen Am, could that, be considered an instance of short saying that by having lot unrounded, that hot and uh, non-rhotic heart, hot, he has a hot hot. You could say that those there's a merger in in place there, which would only be distinguished really by length. He has a hot, hot. Hmm. I'm not sure about and, that because. And then what flavor of Gen M has that? Yeah. <laughs> Non-rhotic. No. What I guess I'm saying is that uh, to J.C. Wells' ear, the realization of of lot. Yes. can be identical to his realization of start. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure that's what he's saying. Well, here, here let me read, read yeah. a, a little bit more. Earlier, he says, phonetically, the ah of RP, start, bath, palm, is a fully open, unrounded vowel lying between back and central. So an advanced ah, if you will. So not as ah as a cardinal ah could mm. be. Ah. In Gen M, start words have the vowel of lot, because lot is pretty much the same vowel as palm, yeah. lot, followed by r. Uh, that's a phonemic r. For a phonetic description, see under lot, and he could, he would go on and describe what yeah. Gen M lot is like. Uh, to me, I would have thought that this would be more like how lot and palm are very similar, rather than yeah distinct you know this does remind me that in boston we have quite a fronted start uh, which is one of the sort of distinguishing have it yad yes or somebody posted to facebook recently a picture of a pair of cockies and a picture of a pair of car keys uh, being shown as homophones right i lost khakis. my cockies and I guess the implication is that the keys is kind of reduced, is in khakis. I think that's the, you put your finger on why they're not actually homophones. Mm -hmm. I mean, that khaki is a palm word. Uh, but if I think about uh, lot, uh, it, is, it is definitely, it, it could be fronted, lot, lot. But don't people say khakis? I, I, I think that what we're being told by this meme is that uh, the pants are khakis, not khakis. I think that may be a... Yeah. I thought they were implying that it was so fronted, khakis, that ka... Well, I, I think I now realize like that ka and have it out. how everybody yeah. pronounces the pants. Right, khakis. I think I say khakis. Ah. Uh. So I missed the joke, I think. <laughs> That's very cocky of you. Exactly. Uh, well, there's another lot word. Yes. See, to me, yeah, that's much more of a lock, lot word. Yeah. Khakis is, to me, a trap word, I think. And um, I think uh, that what this it, points in Boston, to it's sort of is that the loss of roticity 
the the smoothing of this diphthong seems to uh, a rhotic speaker to completely change its lexical set category. Hmm. Uh, and it can be quite confusing. Uh, I've certainly heard RP speakers narrating audiobooks get this totally mixed up, uh, taking essentially all lot words and adding roticity to them. Uh, because if the identity between lot and lad are the same, and you make an American accent by adding roticity to lard, then you ought to add it to lart as well. Right. Uh, so you get a hypercorrection of a sort. Exactly. It's, it's applying a rule to the wrong lexical... It's misidentifying which lexical site category it belongs to. And, and, you know, accent errors are often precisely that. You've got some heuristic that you don't even know you have, and you apply it to the wrong category. And that's why learning lexical site categories is really, really essential for students of speech. Mm-hmm. Not so much that they need to know these things. They already know them. They know which categories things belong to. But they need to know how those categories can get switched and boundaries redrawn and misidentified. So shall we play around with uh, start yeah. in terms of... Um, so if uh, to play with the, the, the idea that it could be smoothed out completely, mm-hmm. what would that sound like? Start. And then it could be broken into two syllables. That'd be tough. Start. It would be. Uh, start. Don't start. Start. <laughs> uh, yes, you can sort of imagine a, a, a sort of a belligerent young child. Um, Don't I'm, start. Yes, particularly if you used a bit of lip rounding. Start. <laughs> yes. I want to start, mummy. <laughs> I can imagine it. It seems a little, a little iffy. <laughs> um, okay, so then we've got the possibility of, on that smooth variation, it being more advanced. Yes, so, so stat. And more retracted. Start. And more rounded slightly. Start. Yeah. Um, and then we have the possibility of it being a diphthong. So if we start with this sort of expected style of a smoothing, centering, non-rhotic version. Start. Start. Oh, I'm hearing a little that I sa- sounds almost rhotic there. No, so let I'm me see start. if I can slow it down and catch myself. Start. 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 And what if you allow that to be a little bit more closed on the coda so that... Uh, start, start. <laughs> it's so hard not to add roticity. <laughs> uh, and uh, to still have uh, as much of a coda, but it be a more open, uh, but still fairly front coda, so that turned type A kind of area. Yeah, start, start. Start. That Start. feels a little more natural on some American non-rhotic accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, let's add a little bit of our coloring into it. So Start. Start. Yes. And then a little cool. more our coloring. Start. And so keeping the same amount of our coloring and see if you can make that a bit more close. Start. Start. Can you do it without lengthening it? Start. And then a little bit less uh, 
close, more open, but still the same amount of our color. Start. Nice. Nice. Wow. Uh, then we're going to dial up the R coloring as much as you can. Start. Nice. Oh, I can keeping do, the beginning I can fairly clean. It. It's, uh, uh, it's really difficult because the direction of more roticity makes me want to add it earlier. Right. But if I keep it in the clear, I can also lengthen the R. Start. Right. And we get the uh, this element of anticipatory co-articulation, right? Mm. That when we get into that sort of start where the R coloring is right from the beginning, um, yeah. that's because we're anticipating it, isn't it? Yeah, that's um, exactly right. Start. Yeah. Start. So with that, how about trying advancing that? Start. Start. <laughs> start. And that, that's very Newfoundland, Atlantic uh, Canada, yeah. right? Start. I'm going start. to start the care. Uh, yeah. And it starts to get more and more close as well. So we start to start to get stared. So uh, oh, square and start start to become homophones. Uh, merger there. Cool. Just in Newfoundland, the, the square shift away or are they really merging? They are really merging. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, Newfoundland. Newfoundland. No D. I gotta work New, on it. No D. Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah. It doesn't come up so much for me. Yeah. Well, you need to find, <laughs> read, read those plays from Newfoundland. There's some great plays from Newfoundland. Do they have a lot of women in them? Because of you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they don't have a lot of women in them. Oh, too bad. But uh, good, good, so good Atlantic County plays, yeah. The, the only other variation on start that we kind of touched on was nasality. Start, start. It just seems to me a little bit of a harder sell. Easier to nasalize square than start. But they're, they're both, in terms of articulation, perfectly easy to do. It's just uh, what seems natural, which means, really, what have I heard? Yes. Uh, you know, like if you had someone saying, came to a lot of harm, harm, um, yeah. I mean, I do think that there is a sort of uh, conceptual overlap between roticity and nasality, and some people get them mixed up. In hearing roticity, they read it as nasality. Yes. My mother's because name is Margaret, and so there is a fair number of people who call her Margaret. Margaret, hmm. Mark, Mark. So the, that's because that's their native accent and they're adding more nasality? Yeah, that the the nasal consonant bleeds into the vowel that follows. Yeah. And uh, that, that R, R tends to take some nasality. Mar, Margaret. For similar reasons that we mentioned earlier, if you're closing off the oral cavity by raising the midline of the tongue, the, there's a better route out through the nose than through the mouth. Mm-hmm. And so with a really strong rhotic quality, you could be blocking off the back of the mouth to a certain degree, uh, which might lead to relaxing the soft palate. Well, I think we might have covered all the realizations. Yeah. I, I do think that if we were aiming towards an accent that had characteristics of or characteristics of oral posture that are aid intelligibility. I think reducing nasality and reducing the time spent in roticity are valid things uh, for actors to work on. But again, 
that always comes with the caveat that you should be able to do everything because you never know what accent you're going to have to do. Ain't it the truth? And and you and I are accent fossils for uh, yes, more are. than one reason, I'm sure. And so there are things that our students are saying that we may respond to as horrifying decay of language, but in fact are just the new normal. Yes, and I, you know, I'm constantly trying to coax people into the, that thought that, you know, it's it's just changing and it's something we have to keep adapting to, listening constantly noticing the yeah. new sounds around us and and getting ready for whatever's coming next. And I think that we should be noticing our responses. I, I'm not trying to suggest a world in which we don't think, we, we don't have that impulse of saying, boy, that's kind of too nasal, or uh, that sounds funny, because we're trying to intuit what an audience will think, how the accent will be read. So we're both thinking about how it's received and how it's produced. Mm -hmm. And and we want to be flexible in both of those uh, and and avoid fossilization of our opinions, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, always questioning. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that we may have come to the end of our time. Uh, we're sort of around the 55-minute mark here. Sounds perfect. Excellent. So uh, what what's on our schedule for our next session? Well, uh, I think we're going to try to tackle diacritic marks. Terrific. That will be a sort of a dash through. So I would suggest that uh, people following along at home have a chart handy. Yes. So we'll remind you when we start our next episode. But if you, if you happen to have a chart or don't happen to have a chart, you might want to go looking for one. Good old Google for IPA chart you're likely to come up with the yeah. the right thing. We'll probably touch on the, the extended IPA diacritics as well. So mm -hmm. if you aren't familiar with the extended IPA diacritics, that is something you should look up to because um, in terms of doing very narrow transcription, extended IPA has been very, very helpful. Yes, indeed. Well, terrific. It's been a pleasure. As always. And uh, if people want to reach us, they can send us an email to glossonomia at gmail.com. And we'll we'd be very happy to get an email from somebody asking us questions. Terrific. Well, I'll see you next time. Adios.